Well, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to enjoy getting used to saying that. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. What an exciting study. What an encouraging study. Here we are, just our second week looking into the book of Revelation. Last week we looked at the first three verses in Revelation chapter 1, and I'd like you to look once again at verse 3, where it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so you who are here listening to the words of this book being read, both in our sermon and in our scripture reading, you are blessed. Part of the blessed few who God has selected, whom God has called into fellowship with a church, a group of believers who preach and teach the book of Revelation. All of the Bible is blessed to hear the word of God, to have it in our own language, to have it taught so that we can understand it and keep it. But to have the book of Revelation, there's a special blessing that God places on this book. And though most Christians neglect it, though most Christians throughout church history have misunderstood or ignored this blessed book, God adds this special blessing to encourage us to make sure that though there are things in the book of Revelation that are difficult to understand and though Christians will disagree over the timing of the fulfillment of many of the events recorded in the book of Revelation, yet God wants us to understand it. God has given this to us as his final message to his beloved church that he is coming. And we need to have our eyes focused on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, both his first coming and his second coming. I have the picture here on the PowerPoint of the crown that Christ received at his first coming, contrasted and compared with the crown that he will receive at his second coming. He came once to suffer for our sins. He's coming again to sit on the throne for all eternity, the ages of the ages that are yet to come. If we have one eye fixed on his first coming and one eye fixed on his second coming, then we'll have both of our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's do that. This morning we're going to be looking into Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 8. And here you see our outline for this passage. The big idea is here on this outline that God is on his way. I love that thought. God is on his way. That's the way it's described here in the opening chapter and in the closing chapter, that he is coming. A present tense verb talking about his action. And if someone's coming, you know that it's not long until they're going to be here. Someone calls you and says, I'm on my way. That's a present tense verb telling you about what's about to happen in the future. And that's what Jesus Christ says to us. He says, I'm on my way. Be ready. I'm coming. And so, this passage in Revelation 1, 4 through 8 is going to be very theologically dense and rich. I wish I had two hours here with you this morning to unpack all of the ecclesiology, all of the soteriology, all of the Christology, all of the theology proper, all of the dense, rich truth that is found in these opening verses of this letter in Revelation 1, 4 through 8. But I've only got about 40 minutes, and so we're going to have to compact that very tightly together. And our big idea then is that we're going to see who we are in Christ, who God is in the Trinity, and that Christ is coming with our response. 
So who we are, who God is, that all informs the significance, the meaning of Christ's coming. And then once we put our faith and trust in the truth, this life-changing, profound truth that Christ is coming, then you're going to see our response of hearty agreement, the amen that we say in our hearts when we focus on the truth that Christ is coming. That's our big idea here in Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Let's read the passage together. Follow along in your Bibles. I'll read it out loud for the congregation. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So you see in these verses, we have a lot of information about who we are, who God is, and about the coming of Christ and our response. Even so, amen, come Lord Jesus. So let's take a closer look then at point number one in our outline, who we are in Christ. All right? Now, John is going to give us some indications about who we are because he identifies himself with us. You remember, last week we talked about how the book of Revelation is an epistolary prophecy. That is, it is a prophetic book in the form of a New Testament letter. And so here at the beginning of the book, we have the very same formula that we have in other New Testament letters where the author identifies himself and gives a greeting to those that he is writing to you. And the Christian greeting, grace to you and peace. Now you can spend a lot of time meditating and thinking upon just that wonderful greeting, grace to you and peace. But we don't have time for that this morning, so we're going to move right past that and get to John. Who is John, and what do we learn about ourselves by how John identifies himself in the book? Now, in verse 4, John is very brief about his self-description. He just says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and that's the way that Greek letters functioned. The author puts his name first, who he's writing to second. But when we come down to verse 9, we get a little bit more information about John that I want to include this week in our passage, where he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, remember, we said that John, who wrote this book, is not some other John, but it's John the Apostle. The same one who wrote the Gospel of John, the same one who wrote the letters of John, also wrote this book of Revelation. And though John is an apostle, and he's the last surviving apostle, he doesn't identify himself that way to the church. He doesn't say, I, John, the last surviving apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he says, I, John, your brother. And this is in keeping with what Jesus taught his disciples, that you're not supposed to call anyone your teacher. You have one teacher who is in heaven, and that you are all brothers. And so how does John identify himself to the churches? Well, though he has the authority of the apostle, though he has the exalted position of apostleship, he doesn't throw his weight around. Instead, he says, I'm your brother. 
And so that's one thing that we all keep in mind with one another. There's no hierarchy in the church as far as our basic identity goes. There is an authority structure in the church. I and the other elders have the authority to pastor and shepherd the church, and you are responsible to submit to the authority of those whom God has placed over to you. There is a hierarchy in the church, but we don't lord it over those that are under our charge, but instead we are servants of those who are in the church, and we recognize that all men are equal at the foot of the cross. And if God gives you a position of authority, husbands, if you're the authority in your family, If you're the authority at work, if you're the boss at work, you have the same attitude that you don't lord it over those that you have authority over, but instead you are a humble servant of those that God has given you responsibility for. And that's really what John does. He humbles himself. He says, I am your brother. That's our basic identity. And I'm your brother. You're my brother. We are equals. There's no priesthood of pastors. That is all part of a sacerdotal system that has nothing to do with the New Testament. And so I don't even like the title of pastor that much. You don't have to call me pastor. Just call me Timothy. That's who I am. I'm your brother. We're all brothers. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are partners in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Isn't that an interesting way to describe John? And by John's self-description, we learn about ourself, our own identity in Christ as well. That if he is our partner in this, that means that we also are sharing with him in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And what we learn from this is that God works in our life in this world much like he did in the life of Jesus Christ. And if we back up to this slide, you remember that the cross comes before the crown, that the suffering comes before the glory. And though God has destined us for his glorious kingdom and we have an amazing future in store for us, that in this world, God has promised us tribulation. Jesus told you, in the world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise of God. You can write down, put it on your mirror, say, I'm counting on the promise of God today that I'm going to have tribulation in the world. And that tribulation is something that John experienced. It's something that all of God's children experience, and we are all partners in that tribulation because we are a part of God's kingdom, but we are a suffering kingdom until our king returns. Just as Christ suffered in this world, so we're going to suffer in this world as a part of his kingdom. And when Christ is returning in glory, that's when we will be exalted in glory as well. But for now, because of our tribulation, as we're waiting for the kingdom, we have to endure. That's where you have that word patient endurance. Now, the verse reveals to us in verse 9 that John was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. When he says that, he means that he has been exiled from where he was living in Asia among these seven churches. John's later career was not in Jerusalem. After Jerusalem was destroyed, the apostles left. Well, right before it was destroyed, they left because Jesus warned them about it. And then he moved to these churches in Asia Minor and was pastoring these churches during his latter decades of his life. But he had been taken away from the churches his new home in Asia Minor, and now he was in exile on the island of Patmos. We'll talk more about that in the future, but what I want you to recognize is that John is like another Daniel. There's going to be a lot of comparisons between the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, and one of those comparisons is the author. Daniel was exiled from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was destroyed because of the sin of God's people in the Old Testament. 
and Daniel was living outside of the Holy Land. And now Jerusalem has been destroyed again because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. And now John is living outside of Jerusalem. And not only is he living outside of Jerusalem, but he's experiencing tribulation, even as Daniel experienced tribulation. Now think about how John being in exile, John being persecuted, is so useful to God that it's here, when he is away from home, away from Israel, away from his churches, and he's by himself on this island. Well, other people are living on the island, but you know what I mean. And he is then used by God to give us this amazing book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many times has God done this in the church and in history? How many times has God used people in prison, or in this case in exile, to do things that wouldn't have gotten done otherwise and have changed the course of history? You have to remember this. When God brings suffering into your life, that God has a purpose. He has a plan for it that goes far beyond what you can understand. This is what we hear about in Philippians chapter 1 when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi while Paul was in prison. Philippians is one of the prison epistles. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so if God has tribulation for you or your children in life because of Jesus Christ, because of the testimony of Christ, and they end up going to prison or they end up losing their job or they end up having really adverse circumstances, recognize God's going to use that. God's going to use that to advance the gospel. It's all part of his plan. Even when people try to oppose the gospel, hey, we've got to get John away, we've got to send him off into exile, he's causing too much trouble, then God just uses that to do something that wouldn't have gotten done if John was there. Think about not only Paul's example, but think about later in church history. When did the Bible get translated into German to change the course of European history? Well, when Martin Luther was taken captive so that he wouldn't get put to death, and he was scurried away by his friends and secluded in the castle, and he was able to translate the Bible into German and change the course of the Protestant Reformation. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the tribulation that he experienced, that his life was threatened, and then God used him through that life-threatening circumstance to give us the Bible in German. Think about William Tyndale, exiled from England. And while in exile, he's translating the Bible into English and sending it back across the English Channel, back to his home country. So over and over again, God uses the opposition to the gospel to actually further the gospel in ways that we could never imagine or understand. This is one of those examples. Think about John Bunyan writing Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison for preaching illegally. So God is able to turn every attack against the gospel into an advance for the gospel. Hallelujah, we have an amazing God. I just wanted to point that out here at the beginning of our study with John being in exile on the island of Patmos and giving us the ultimate book of the Bible. Now, John being a second Daniel, he is an example for us of a suffering kingdom people, that we are pilgrims. The glories of the kingdom are to follow, but right now we have suffering. A great example of this in Scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. There, the early church hymn that seems to be recorded, written down by Paul in 2 Timothy, states, if we endure, 
There's the word endurance, remember? The patient endurance that are in Jesus. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So we can't deny Christ when the pressure comes on us. We have to endure in our testimony for Jesus Christ, knowing that we will reign with him when he returns. This is the perseverance of the saints, the hope that God has given to us. And then another great example in the New Testament of the suffering kingdom now and the glorious kingdom in the future is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where Paul begins by saying, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. There's our word endurance. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So, we suffer now, and then the glorious kingdom is in the future. We are a kingdom, but we're a suffering kingdom. There's a glorious kingdom that is coming, and that's what we're waiting for. Okay? So, so many good verses on this. Let me just share two more. Romans 8, verse 17 says, If we are children, children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God says this over and over again. He keeps on reminding us, suffering now, glory later. Keep that in your mind every day. I'm here to suffer. And if I keep being faithful, I will be glorified when Christ returns. That's the plan. Don't be surprised if it happens because that's what we've been told. That's the promise. That's the plan. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 reminds us, we have need of what? Endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance and suffering now, promise of glory later. All right, so that's who we are. We are a suffering pilgrim people who are expecting the glories that are to come. And so we get more on this. Let's take a closer look at who we are also in the letter by looking at the recipients of the letter. And for this, we've got to back up to verse 1 one more time. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to who? His servants. And that word servant is a nice translation because we are allergic to the word slave because of our culture. And really it's the word slave, that we are his slaves. And this slavery idea that we are God's slaves happens 11 times in the book of Revelation. 11 times we are identified as God's slaves in the book of Revelation. One of them was in our scripture reading in Revelation chapter 22. And that's why I put this verse up here for you, Psalm 84 verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Make me a slave in God's household. That's where I want to be. I'd rather be a slave in God's temple than be dwelling in the evil tents of the wicked. So we are God's servants. We are his slaves. We are in the household of God. He's the master of the house. We are the servants in the house. But he's such a good master. He's such a loving master. He doesn't abuse us in any way. And in fact, he adopts us. He adopts us into his family. Something that we don't deserve. Something that we have no right to. And yet he tells us all of his secrets. He shares with us all of his blessings. And we are tremendously rich as servants in God's household so that even his son washes our feet when we should be the one washing his feet. 
He has served us when we should be serving him. Doesn't change the fact that we're slaves. We're just really well-treated slaves. He loves us in such an amazing way. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And then also along this line, not only are we his servants, but we are identified as priests in verse 6. Notice, God has loved us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. And what has he made us to be? He's made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. So let's talk about the priesthood of the believer. How is it that we are priests? Well, for one thing, we serve and minister in the house of God. Whether you are a doorkeeper, greeting people as they come in in the morning, or whether you are a preacher standing up on the stage declaring God's truth, or whether you are an administrator working behind the scenes, or whether you are showing hospitality to the saints during the week, or whether you are giving in the offering so that we can have all of this together, many manifold ways that I can't go into everything that you all do, you are priests in the holy temple of God. Not only is this congregation the household of God, but we are the temple of God because God's house isn't just a house, God's house is a temple. And so we are priests. We're slaves in God's household. We're priests in God's holy temple. That's who God has made us to be. Priests to his God and Father. Let's talk a little bit more about the priesthood of the believer by referencing later in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Notice this. In Revelation chapter 1, it says he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Here it says they will be priests of God and of Christ. So in one sense, we are priests now because here's the temple and we're serving each other. We're building up the temple. We're carrying out holy sacrifices. We're lifting up thanksgiving to God. That all of that is part of our priesthood functioning now. But there is a future aspect to our priesthood in the glorious kingdom that is to come. That's when we're going to be reigning with him for that thousand years that it talks about in Revelation chapter 20. So we are priests, but we also will be priests of God in a future plan for our priesthood. And then 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 identifies the Jewish church and also probably some Gentiles among them as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And this idea of being this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this chosen race, is something that has its roots back in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. And now Christ has made it a more powerful fulfillment in the new covenant than it ever was in the old covenant, not only for the nation of Israel, but also for us who are the Gentiles, but who have been now brought into the covenants of promise through our union with Jesus Christ. Understand this. God will never do less than he has promised, but he can do more than he has promised. God will never fail in his promises to the people of Israel, and when he made them his covenant people and entered into that relationship through the Abrahamic covenant, through the Mosaic covenant, through the Davidic covenant, through all the covenants of promise in the Old Testament, he will keep every promise that he made to the nation of Israel, and we're going to see that as we go through the book of Revelation. But that doesn't mean that he can't do more. And the more that he does is he brings us into those blessings as well. All those blessings that were promised to Israel, we get to enjoy and experience by nature of our union with Christ, the ultimate Israelite. 
And so in Christ, these blessings of Israel are also ours. Now we can be called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, as Peter identifies the believing church in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, being a priest, being this royal priesthood, this holy nation, is a privileged position among all the peoples that are on the earth. Just as it was a privilege for Israel to be God's unique and special nation, so it's a privilege for us to now be made into this kingdom. He says in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 6, you shall be called the priests of the Lord. So everything that God intended for them back in Exodus chapter 19 everything they failed to be because of their unfaithfulness to God's covenant, God is going to work in such a way as to make that possible for the future that Israel will be called the priests of the Lord. And they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about, is about all of this coming true for Israel, but not just for Israel also for those among the nations who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. So these promises to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel, but we also get in on so many of these amazing promises because of our union with Christ. So I wanted to just remind you of Exodus 19, since I've been referencing it, where at Mount Sinai, as God was entering into his covenant relationship with Israel, he told them, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is our identity now in Christ, as we see in Revelation chapter 1. He has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory forever. And so, it's also important for us this morning to talk a little bit about what it means for us to be a kingdom. You see there, a kingdom of priests. And you look in this text, Revelation chapter 1, he has made us a kingdom. Past tense, he has made us a kingdom. And so, in one sense, we already are a kingdom. But, in another sense, the kingdom of God is something that is future, something that we are waiting for. We're a suffering kingdom now. There's a glorious kingdom when Christ is present with us after his return that is the kingdom of God that is most focused on in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, and especially here in the book of Revelation. So there's a few passages in the New Testament that focus on this idea of us being a kingdom or being in the kingdom now. There's a little bit of kingdom now in the Bible. This is one of those verses. However, theologians, pastors, preachers make a mistake to teach that this is the main emphasis or the main idea as the kingdom now. No, the Bible always puts the emphasis, the majority of the focus on the future coming kingdom. Doesn't mean that we're not a kingdom people now. We are a kingdom people. But the kingdom of God has not yet been inaugurated in the sense that Christ is not present and he's not ruling as a political ruler on this earth presently, okay? That's a key distinction I want you to understand. Now, I did a whole message on this very subject of how is the kingdom present now and how is the kingdom not yet now, and that is one of the messages that I sent out to you in the email this last week that you can listen to in order to get ready for the book of Revelation. So this week, I'd highly recommend clicking on the link I gave you for the kingdom of God in the New Testament, what is the kingdom of God as defined by the New Testament? Give a whole hour-long message on that. 
If you have any questions about what I'm talking about, listen to that message and it will help set you up for understanding the kingdom of God, a key theme here in the book of Revelation. All right? So here's one of those rare verses in the New Testament that talks about the present nature of the kingdom where it says in Paul's letter, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, past tense, to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we have already been transferred to the kingdom. This is that already sense of the kingdom, but this is one of just a few passages that focus on that aspect of the kingdom. Most of the passages focus on the future. Here's a verse, one out of many examples, on the future nature of the kingdom, where Paul writes to the Corinthians, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That inherit language is future language. An inheritance is something that you're waiting for. You will inherit the kingdom of God, indicating its future nature. So we're waiting to inherit the kingdom. But the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, these are the unrighteous, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Christians who say, well, you know, I'm a Christian immoral person. Uh, I'm a Christian adulterer. I'm a Christian homosexual. You're not going to inherit the kingdom. That's what the scripture makes very clear. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, is another similar verse where Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, that our bodies have to be changed before we will experience the fullness of God's kingdom in the future sense of the kingdom of God. Most of the New Testament passages about the kingdom of God have this future aspect in mind. Another example, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. Paul, at the end of his life, says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. See, Paul is still waiting to enter into the kingdom. And it's very important that we get that idea in our minds so that we don't get confused about the nature of God's kingdom and have an over-realized eschatology, if I could use that word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, final example here. It says, For in this way... That is, by pursuing godliness and the knowledge of Christ. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have been made a kingdom, but we haven't entered the kingdom yet. It's a little confusing, but I think if you think about it, meditate on that, you'll understand what the New Testament teaches about the present aspect of the kingdom and the future aspect of the kingdom. I told you this is a theologically rich and dense section of God's word in these short few verses. The kingdom doesn't come until the seventh angel blows his trumpet, and then the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the message of the book. That's what we're looking forward to, how the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and that has not happened yet. That is in the future. It's what is unveiled in the book of Revelation, exactly how that comes to pass, and it is glorious. All right, so that is who we are. That's the first point in our sermon this morning, who we are in Christ. Who are we? We are slaves of God. We are brothers with one another. We are a holy temple. We are priests in that holy temple. We are a kingdom, but we are a suffering kingdom who is waiting for our king to return so that we can enter into the glorious kingdom that he has prepared for us. That's who we are in Christ. And you can spend a lot of time thinking about that, meditating on that, making that your identity so that you think about yourself according to the truth of God's word and not according to the way the world teaches you to think about your identity. Identity is very important and we've got to get it right. 
who we are in Christ. So second, we want to look at this passage from the angle of who God is, because we have a lot of superlative titles, a lot of exalted titles for both the Father and the Son, and even a little bit of confusion about the person of the Holy Spirit that we want to clear up in this text about who God is. We have a Trinitarian greeting, a Trinitarian doxology, a Trinitarian blessing here at the beginning of the book, where it says, grace to you and peace from, see the grace to you and peace is from God. And first, we have the identity of the Father, from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's an unusual way for the New Testament to refer to God the Father. But John has a very good purpose for why he breaks from the norm here and just saying from the Father. And instead he says, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. This emphasizes the eternal, unchanging, undying nature of God because God the Father is being contrasted with human rulers, human authorities. Throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to see God's judgment upon human rulers and authorities. Those human rulers and authorities are mortal. They have not always been there. There have been others who came before them, and they're not always going to be there. There's going to be others who come after them. But God is the one who is the eternal great I Am. And this language here in Revelation where it says, He who is, it's unusual Greek grammar because John is drawing our attention back to the original declaration of God's name, his nature, his character, back in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that language, translated into Greek, is where we get the title for God there at the beginning of this grace to you and peace from him who is, the one who is the I am. And you can see it's clearly coming from this passage in Exodus 3 when you look at them both in the original language. You see, there's a little footnote here. That letter A indicates that there's a footnote in the ESV. That's what I'm using to preach from and putting up here on the screen for you. And in the ESV, the footnote for Exodus 3.14 says, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And so there's different ways of understanding this statement of God. Is it talking about his present nature, his future nature, or both? And so John brings it all together, and he says, he is the I am, the one who is, he is the one who was, and he is the one who is to come. Now, when you come to the third part of God the Father's description, the one who is to come, it's also unusual. It's not what would be expected. And so when something is unusual and unexpected, it gets our attention. And the reason why John didn't do what we would expect him to do, which would be what? We would expect him to say who is and who was and who will be. But he doesn't say who will be. He says who is coming, who is to come, which is actually not a future tense, but it's a present tense describing the coming of God. Throughout the book, this word to come is going to be used to describe Jesus Christ. Look again at our scripture for today, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And over and over again, as we read in Revelation 22, as we see here in Revelation 1, it's going to be talking about the coming of Jesus. But even God the Father is described as the one who is coming, the one who is on his way. Because throughout the book, I want you to understand this, there is a close connection between the Father and the Son. 
And this is in keeping with how John wrote his gospel because John is the one out of all the apostles, I think, who understood the Trinity in the most deep and profound way and who wrote about the Trinity in the most deep and profound way. And throughout John's gospel, you have statements that indicate the nature of the Trinity such as, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so, because Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, that when the Son comes, it's the coming of the Father. You see, in one way, the coming of Jesus is the coming of the Father. The Father could not come in any more real way, in any more actual way, than by the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus is the coming of the Father because he is one God. And Jesus, the Son of God, he is the revelator. He is the one who reveals the Father. No one has ever seen the Father, but the only begotten God. He is the one who reveals him. And so the coming of Jesus is the coming of the Father, just like seeing Jesus is seeing the Father. And that's why the Father here is described as the one who is to come. That John is making this close connection between the Father and the Son. You'll see that over and over again as we go through the book. It's pretty awesome. Now, not only does he speak of God the Father in verse 4 in the greeting, but he also, I think, references God the Father again in verse 8. Look at verse 8 for more on the Trinity. Here, the Lord God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I think it's the Father because he identifies himself as who is and who was and who is to come, just like he's identified in verse 4 that way. And we'll see that verses 4, 5, and 6 are all about the Trinity, about the Father, the Spirit, and about Jesus. And this title, the Lord God, is what was used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God the Father. Alpha and Omega is also a great title for God the Father. And the Almighty is the Greek translation of the Old Testament phrase, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has all of heaven's armies at his command, and so he is almighty. One of his angels can wipe out a whole army of the Assyrians, and he's got thousands of angels. And so he is the Lord, the almighty, the one who rules over all, the Lord of hosts. And so I think it's talking about the Father. But a good case can be made that verse 8 is not the Father speaking, but it's the Son speaking. Because the Alpha and the Omega title is not only used in the book of Revelation by the Father, but it's also used by the Son. And the one who is coming is the Son. And he is also the Lord God. He is also the Almighty. And so the fact that it can actually be difficult to know in verse 8, whether it's the Father speaking or whether it's the Son speaking, shows you once again the close identity of the Father and the Son throughout the book. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. They are one God. And so it's pretty awesome, the doctrine of the Trinity that's here. Now, Verse 8, while we're on the subject of verse 8, brings up a question. Why does the Lord God insert this oracular statement, this oracle, this direct quote from God here in the introduction? You know, John's been speaking in his own voice throughout the first seven verses. John to the seven churches, grace to you and peace. It's a normal letter. And then out of nowhere, he includes this quotation from the Lord God that I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. Why? Why does he put it there? Well, if you come to the end of the book, you'll get your answer. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 through 8, we have a clear indication 
that when John includes a statement like this from the one who is seated on the throne, as it's introduced in chapter 21, verse 5, what it is is it's a confirmation from God the Father of the message that is being spoken. And what is the message that's being spoken? Well, that Christ is coming. So it's the Father saying his amen, writing his signature, putting his stamp on the truth of Christ's coming that is unfolded in the book. Starting in chapter 1, the Lord is coming. In chapter 21, the Lord has come. And so we come to verse 5 and it says, He who was seated on the throne in chapter 21 said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he goes on. And we have this long quote from God, his promise. And it's putting his stamp on the book and saying, this is my message. I am the one who is behind this amazing revelation. Just as it says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves. So God says, I'm the one who gave this message. And what is the message? Well, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even so, amen, in verse 7. But I'm getting ahead of myself, or I'm getting behind, one of the two, because I've got to stop preaching, and we've got to get to the Lord's table today. So, we're cutting off the message halfway. We'll continue where we left off next week. And we'll pick up with really what is one of the most confusing and difficult parts of the book of Revelation, the identity of the seven spirits who are before his throne. So if you have questions about the seven spirits before his throne, I hope to answer those next week. And I hope to see you here for that.